Hello, welcome to Feed, Play, Love, the bite-sized podcast for parents. I'm Siobhan Hunt. This is a show all about parenting. I speak to experts and carers about everything from fussy eating, toddler behavior, sleep and more. Parents aren't short of people telling them they're doing the wrong thing. You don't have to look too far to find what you should be doing when it comes to screen time, food preparation and any other facet of raising children. But perhaps what we're missing with this general tone of conversation is any real sense of perspective. What has changed in the way we parent? Why? And what real consequence has it had? Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist, professor, and he's a professor of ethical leadership at New York University and an author of The Coddling of the American Mind. He's in Australia on July 21st, and we have him on the phone now. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? Very well, thanks. How are you? Good, thank you. Uh, What do you think is the most detrimental part of the way some people parent today? Uh, So there's a mental health catastrophe unfolding in the United States, Britain, and Canada. uh, And I'm trying to find out whether uh, these rates are rising in Australia. And what, uh, what we argue in our book, based on studying a variety of possible causes, is that the two big causes, the two things that are really messing up Gen Z, that is kids born in 1996 and after, um, are one, vast overprotection, where in America we stopped letting our kids out. We literally stopped letting them go outside without supervision in the 1990s. Um, it, by the early 2000s in America, nobody had seen a child unaccompanied for so long that if a child was seen playing in a park, the parents could be arrested. Uh, and so we grossly overprotected our kids and deprived them of basic learning experiences of independence. That's factor one. And I think as far as I can tell, you don't do that nearly as badly in Australia as we do in in America and Canada. Oh, it still happens. Factor two. (laughs) Okay. But look, you know, we're all on the same trajectory in terms of economic development and, and technology. So whatever bad ideas, whatever bad things we're doing in America, odds are you're going to start doing them a few years later. Uh, in Australia. So be on the lookout for this one. Uh, And then the other really big one is um, letting kids on social media way too early. So, you know, my kids are nine and and 12. And like all parents, we struggle over how much they use their devices. And what I've learned from really digging deeply into the data is that the problem isn't so much screen time. You you know, you don't want your kids spending six hours on a screen because they don't do anything else. But spending a few hours a day on a screen does not make them depressed and anxious. It's social media and it's for girls. That's the problem. When girls get on social media in middle school, when they get on around age 10, 11, 12, 13, that's when you find much higher rates of depression and anxiety for the heavy users. That's the specific problem. Um, With social media, that we can really pinpoint the problem there in terms of um, parents not even understanding it themselves and then allowing their kids to engage with it too early. But why do you think parenting changed in terms of giving our children independence and letting them do things on their own? Yeah, so there are a lot of factors. um, And probably they don't apply quite as much in Australia, but let let me just go through them. So for one thing, um, we all have fewer children now. And so when, when everyone, when on average families had three kids, there were a lot of kids around. So kids would go out and play, and it wasn't realistic for parents to, over, to you know, be guarding them. There's two parents and three or four kids. 
So it wasn't even an option. Um, then, at least in the United States, we had a real crime wave. When I was growing up in the 1970s, we had a gigantic wave of crime. It was actually quite dangerous. But we still let our kids out. But gradually, uh, as cable TV came in in the 1980s, now, whenever a child disappeared, the news programs would freak us all out about child abduction. Um, and so by the 1990s, when the crime wave ended, so in the United States, our gigantic crime wave, our street crime wave, just ended pretty suddenly in the, in the early to mid-90s. But by then, we'd gotten so freaked out by child abduction that we started acting like if you ever take your eyes off your kid, some person is going to reach you know, out of the laundry detergent aisle and grab him and run off. Uh, so I think it was largely the news media freaking us out about our increasingly precious kids, because now we only had one or two by this time. Um, and the whole idea of parenting became much more competitive, at least in the United States, for the middle class and above. We're all so focused on getting our kids into the top colleges that we see our kids as our project. I've got to bring my kid to this lesson and that lesson, as opposed to just letting them grow up and learn the skills they need on the playground. And what has been the impact of this on Gen Z? So if that's children born in the 90s, they're in their early 20s now. Um, What impact has that kind of parenting had on them? So the the reason why I started studying this, my friend Greg Lukianoff runs a a free speech organization, works on college campuses. In 2015, uh, 2014, he came to me and said, John, weird stuff is happening on American college campuses. Students are demanding safe spaces, trigger warnings in case the teacher assigns a book that has some some violence in it. Um, uh, They were shouting down speakers, claiming words are violent. So weird stuff was happening. And the students kept talking as though if they're exposed to certain ideas or books, they will be traumatized. People will be harmed. And we couldn't understand this. And only a few years later did we realize it's because the millennial generation was over. Um, the millennials, the last of them were born in 1994. After they graduated from college around 2014, 2015, um, colleges were entirely composed of Gen Z. And Gen Z, is the, they got social media in middle school. The millennials didn't get social media until college. Facebook originally was only for college students. Um, so what's happened is we have a generation, kids born in 1996 and after, are much more anxious fragile. Um, Kids are naturally anti-fragile. That is, kids normally get stronger when they are stressed or when they have conflict or when they have challenges. But we've protected them so much that by the time our kids go off to college, they're not ready for it. They're not ready to live independently. We've deprived them of independence. And so the result is kids on college campuses want the deans and the professors to do things for them, to protect them from insects and criminals and and bad books. they're coming out very fragile and really not ready to join the workforce either. So we have a big problem in America, in Britain, in Canada, and I just I hope it's not as bad for you. Look, can I um, just play the devil's advocate for a moment? Because I am a mum. Um, I'm a Gen X mum, to put it in perspective. And um, mm-hmm. in my office, I have colleagues who I would say are millennials, not Gen Zers, but millennials. And we were having a discussion one day about uh, one of my colleagues' flatmates who um, seemed incapable of looking after himself. He was a bit of a slob. He wasn't cleaning up. And my colleagues who were um, in that millennial bracket said that it was his mother's fault, which I took great offense mm-hmm. at because part of me was like, uh-huh. 
Well, it's very easy to blame the mother. We get blamed for everything. But the other part of me was yeah, like... you sure do. <laughs> yeah. And the other part of me was like, hold on a minute. I It took me a long time to leave home. I, I didn't leave home till I was 23. And yeah, I was a bit of a slob. But you know what? I learned because I was an adult and I had to take care of myself. So how much of this phenomena can we place at the feet of parents and how much is it oh come on guys you're adults you have to work it out at some time yeah. even if your parent parents protected you when you were young mm-hmm. what's yeah. your response to well, that one of the really yeah so so one of the really interesting findings in psychology is that what the parents do at home doesn't actually have that much of an effect that we can detect in other words behavior genetic studies show that the traits of a kid are uh, about half the variance is caused by the genes, and very little is caused by the by the shared family environment. That's kind of mysterious. But if this, the resolution seems to be this: that kids are influenced by by their childhood, but it's not necessarily by their specific parents. It's by the norms in the community. And so, in, in the United States, the norms of the community just freaked out in the '90s, and kids got the message not just from their own parents but from all parents and from the media, that the world is dangerous. And if you're outside, someone will abduct you. Always be near a parent. Always report to an adult if you see something. So so this, I think, uh, takes a lot of the burden off of the mothers, because usually we want to blame the specific mother of the specific child. Uh, This is a communal problem. And we have to all work together to raise kids who are strong. And there are a lot of forces pushing, especially mothers, to overprotect. Because if a, if, a, if a father gives the kids some independence, people will be more tolerant of that. If a mother gives the kids some independence, well, you're not watching him. What if he gets hit by a car? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I think we all need to realize, you know, back off on the specific mothers and realize that we have a crisis of child rearing that is collective. Our society, this American and Canadian society, is, is paranoid when it shouldn't be. The crime rates are quite low. And besides, criminals don't really bother kids anyway. My God, I live here. I live in New York City. I can look out my window. There's drug dealers all over the place in Washington Square Park, but they don't bother my kids. They're just there to make money. Anyway, um, <laughs> so so we've got to uh, we've got to recognize that kids need independence and challenge. They are anti-fragile. We have to be much more free-range about how we raise them. How we raise them. We'll be back with Jonathan Hyde right after this. Sometimes parenting can be challenging, and sometimes it can be a downright laugh. Yeah. <laughs> you give them a um, LCM, you know those terrible, terribly good. You mean? <laughs> I, I make give my them... own homemade version. We call them bubble treats at home. <laughs> I call them energy bars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who doesn't want breakfast cereal mixed with melted marshmallow? I dare you to find someone who says no to that. I'm Siobhan Hunt, and the Parent Panel is a weekly podcast I host where we invite a mum and a dad to discuss the events and stories of the week. The Parent Panel, available wherever you get your podcasts. I know that your studies were looking specifically at Gen Z. Um, Have you had any opportunity to observe how parenting may have changed since the 90s even? Because it seems like, you know, you can have a period of even seven years and what was once common knowledge in the parenting sphere has now changed. Yes. So one thing I do whenever I speak about the book, I've spoken certainly all over the United States and somewhat in Britain and Canada, is I ask people in the audience, at what age were you let out? At what age could you walk out the door, wave goodbye to your parents, say, okay, I'm going over to Bailey's house, I'll be back in a few hours. Um, 
And what I find, I always have them answer by generation. What I find is, for everyone born before 1982, the answer is six, plus or minus one or two years. By third grade, by age eight, everybody was outside playing. That was the norm. And this was even during the crime wave uh, when I was a kid. Um, And then for Gen Z, uh, those born after 1996, the answer is between 10 and 12, or 10 and 14, actually. Um, And for the millennials, it's in between. The millennials were transitional. So... Um, it, in the the millennials grew up in the late 80s and, and throughout the 90s is when they were you know in school. Um, that's when the norms were changing. So uh, you know we like to tease the millennials. Uh, I'm a last of the baby boomers. We always tease the millennials. Oh, you were told that you know you get a trophy for everything. <laughs> oh, we care too much about your self esteem. But that's the normal stuff that each generation teases the one behind it. Um, so the millennials are actually doing fine in terms of their mental health. Uh, the real transition is. 1996. Kids born in 1996 and after have much worse mental health because they were vastly overprotected beginning in the late 90s and they were put on social media or allowed to go on social media. Even though the parents didn't necessarily want it, they said, but everybody else is on. If I don't get on, I'll be excluded. And so the parents either relented or the kids just lied about their age and created a secret account. So yeah, the basic ecosystem of kids, the basic social life of kids changed dramatically. Uh, in the United States, at least between 2009 and 2011, that's when they go from mostly living not online to mostly living and interacting online. I guess I'm in a bit of a privileged position because in my job, I'm always speaking to development experts and child psychologists and um, people who are really pushing to get the best outcomes for children. And I do see a lot of people talking about allowing our kids to take more risks, allowing them to fail. Um, Stuff like bush kindy, where they try to get preschool kids out and just let them play in nature. Do you see that society is responding to the outcome of being too protective? Like, do you see the pendulum swinging back from all those groups that are really invested in a child's well-being? Yeah. Well, not yet. It's, I don't think it's happening yet. But that's because two years ago, we didn't know that there was a mental health catastrophe. There were rumors about it. People were talking about it. But there wasn't really strong data. Now there is. It's only really in the last year. There's a book called iGen uh, by Jean Twenge, T-W-E-N-G-E. And then we, uh, I, uh, Greg and I drew on her work and others in our book, The Coddling of the American Mind, which just came out last September. So as we go around the country speaking, we find that parent, everybody's horrified because they see this happening, and now they have a language to understand it. So I think the pendulum has not begun to swing back just yet, but as more and more people come to learn uh, about this and see what's happening, especially to, to uh, young teen girls, I think we will start to see legislative efforts. Uh, I'm going to try to get the American Association of Pediatricians to make a clear statement that nobody should be on social media until they're 15 or 16 years old. We should not be having 11-year-old kids on Instagram. Um, So I think the pendulum will swing back, although I don't see it moving just yet. But boy, I'm pushing as hard as I can. This isn't um, completely related to your argument, but I, I, I suspect that you've had some... Uh, you have some knowledge of this. Um, one of my bugbears is that I think that general comments confuse p- 
permissive parenting with empathetic parenting. So this idea that parents let their kids get away with everything, that they've got no boundaries. Um, in my experience, you can be empathetic and still have boundaries. Um, do you see that Absolutely. distinction or do you think people sometimes oh, just yeah. go black and white? Oh, yes. There's two different dimensions here. Um, kids need structure and kids need love. And and uh, if you are loving and have structure, that's the best. Um, but some people think, oh, well, structure? You mean I'm going to tell them they can't do things they want? Well, but they really want to, and why should I frustrate them? And so permissive parenting, I think, is often lazy parenting. Um, you know, you I, there's one parenting expert, I can't remember who, who said, uh, you should be looking for opportunities to frustrate your kids because they have, <laughs> to deal, they have to learn how to deal with frustration. You know, every day they should deal with frustration. And if you sweep them, if you sweep their life clear of frustration, you're harming them. And I'd say the same thing about stress. This is something I think a lot of people don't realize about stress. Kids need stress. Stress is good. What's bad is chronic stress. Chronic stress causes uh, high cortisol levels, which damages brain development. But occasional challenges... Uh, falling down and hurting yourself, being teased, when these things are occasional, they're necessary. Kids need that in order for their, their minds, their brains, but their minds to grow strong. Now, back to the um, idea of um, the, I guess, going back to your book, The Coddling of the American Mind, and in terms of how we're raising our children, you mentioned with social media there are some very clear legislative um, changes we could make in terms of when children are able to interact with social media. Um, Uh What's your advice for parents in winding back that negative impact of, um, you know, not allowing our children to play outside it's it's as a parent when you said that i was like yeah i don't let my kids out on their own either it's a it's a very emotional thing to try and get around yes that's right so it's very hard to do as one parent or one family it's much easier if the school gives some guidance uh, or if you have uh, other if you have a group of parents um who all agree uh, so parenting is, is again, very social, and if, if you parent differently from others, you might be shamed or even you know, arrested. Uh, so try to do it socially. I would urge your listeners to go to letgrow.org. It's a site that has all kinds of research and ideas for how parents and schools can give kids more independence. Um, simple ideas like just ask schools to keep the playground open before school and after school. Don't make kids take lessons and classes all afternoon long, especially you know when they're eight, nine years old. They mostly just want to play with each other. So there's all kinds of good ideas at letgrow.org. And if I could give some specific ideas about how to deal with devices and media, three simple rules would, would greatly improve uh, kids' outcomes. Rule number one, all devices out of the bedroom by a fixed time, at least half an hour before bedtime. That means laptop computers, iPhones, iPads, um, everything has to be out. Otherwise, some kids will be checking. They'll be checking even, you know, uh, uh, in, during their, you know, when they wake up during a REM cycle, during a sleep cycle. So that's rule number one. All screens out of the bedroom by half an hour before. Rule number two, no social media until, well, high school is what we say here, in grade, grade nine, uh, roughly age 14 or 15. No social media until high school. Um, and then uh, rule number three, make a time budget. So when I started this work, I thought that screen time was a really bad thing. But the research that, that we're digging into many other people's research, what I found is that you know, even two or three hours a day of screen time is not associated with depression and anxiety. Now, it, it blocks out other activities. So I'm not saying three hours a day every day is fine. Uh, 
But, you know, one or two hours a day actually probably is fine. Uh, not for four, five, six-year-olds, but by the time they're eight, nine, ten. Um, the research seems to indicate that that's okay. But if you don't make a budget with your kids, if you just say, hey, try to keep it limited, that's a hopeless battle because those those devices were made by teams of psychologists who know exactly how to keep your kid hooked, who know exactly how to keep your kid on for eight hours a day. So unless you have um, a clear agreement with your kid, and then, if, if, for example, the Apple screen time controls are very good. You really can limit uh, but work it out with your kid. Get your kid's assent if you can. And if not, then you would have to insist. Um, but have a limit so that when the limit's up, they actually do something else. What I found when my wife and I travel with our kids, when we take away their devices, they actually have to play with each other, even though they often fight. But they actually find, oh, I guess I have to play with her. I have to play with him. And then they go out and they do something fun. Yeah. Oh, Jonathan, there is so much in just what you said to think about. <laughs> I'll have to take it away and give myself a few hours to process it all. Um, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Good luck to you and all the other parents of Australia. We're all in, we're all in this together trying to figure <laughs> out what on earth to do with this challenges. Absolutely. That's Jonathan Hyatt. He's a professor of ethical leadership at New York University and author of The Coddling of the American Mind. Jonathan will be in Melbourne on Sunday, July 21st and in Sydney on Thursday, July 25th. We'll put links to where you can get tickets in the notes of this episode. If you're interested in climate change and want to do your bit, you need to listen to the next episode of Feed, Play, Love. Food waste is the third biggest reason for climate change wow. and for our challenges with the environment. Way, it's six times worse than plastic, and most people don't know that. That's Ronnie Kahn from Oz Harvest. She'll be talking about their new book for kids and how everyone can get involved in reducing food waste. That's next on Feed, Play, Love. This podcast is produced by Debbie Ning and hosted by me, Siobhan Hunt. 